Amen. Please be seated. Well, for these last two weeks of Advent, we'll do something special, something different than we normally do as we've been working through the exposition of the Gospel of Mark. I would like to take two weeks to do something I did several years ago. I've divided the verses just a bit differently than before. I wanted to bring it to you again because I think it's a blessing to go through the Word of God, especially the way it was arranged in Messiah, Handel's Messiah. So you have an insert that contains the words to Messiah. It's straight scripture in the King James Version there for you. We'll cover half of it today and then half next week, Lord willing. Not divided exactly equally the way that it's divided into three parts, but you'll see the flow of the wonderful story laid out there before us. And you also experience in the normally trapped in the 16th century Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a magnificent multimedia display with iPods and iPads and roving preachers, you will, for the first time in our history, see such things, and probably the last right after this, as you will see. In all seriousness, I want to be able to play for you portions of it as performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and in a few cases the London Symphony Orchestra so that you can hear them and hear hear them sung because all of this is put to song by Handel for us. And you will see as I go along, uh, or I will point out to you which ones will play. And then look at the words and see how they are arranged, set to music, and the melody that, that, that has been devised for, and how wonderfully it displays the truth of the Word of God uh, as it's put together like this. And I think that all of you, whatever age you are, and even no matter what style of music you like, you'll appreciate better this composition as we think of it this way. We'll see the story unfold. We'll also hear how some of this uh, music in God is given us music, captures the mood that is present in God's Word. So with that, I want to begin first by reading the first five verses of Isaiah 40 as a setup because Handel relies upon Isaiah most in this composition. So let's hear the first five verses of God's Word in the prophecy from Isaiah, starting with verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the Almighty One. And as we consider the message of your word, which is the message of Jesus Christ, reveal your glory afresh that all flesh may See together and say in humble praise, glory to God in the highest. Hallelujah to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his blood to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. So, Handel's Messiah. I think the greatest human composition we have ever seen. Now, I want you to look at the words with me as we go through this to really grasp the flow of the scriptural story. It's the biblical message of Messiah embodied here in this composition before us. 
Now, to give fair credit, Charles Jennings is actually the man who took the scriptures that we have before us and laced them out in this story. Jennings did this in 1739. He gave them in this arrangement to Handel in 1740. Handel then holed up in his English flat for 24 days only and wrote this whole oratorio. 24 days it took him to take these words and put them to music. And Handel is one of the greatest composers. Even the likes of Mozart says that uh, he is the master of us all, speaking of other composers. Uh, Beethoven and Bach both gave great credit to him. So we're sure of his musical genius, but what happens here is, is really a gift to the church. It's a gift uh, of text painting, which he was known for. He could take a text, any text, and then paint it with music having melody match the words so that you could really feel what was being said by the author. And he does it wonderfully here in Messiah, as we see. And for Handel to do this, uh, it became his, really his life, the work that he'd become most known for. He'd done waterworks, uh, uh, many other wonderful things. But this is something that, that he's become known for. And you all probably during Christmas time will listen to some portion of Messiah. Maybe you go see it perform. Now, usually what happens when you go see it perform is that it stops right at the hell of your course. That's the end. That's really only the middle of this wonderful story that's laid out by Handel. And that's why I want us to take some time to see it all. Because when we think of Advent, when we celebrate Christmas, that's the beginning of the whole good news of Christ. It's the beginning of, the, of what he does in the work of salvation and then ultimately the overthrow of death. If you look at the way it's lined out, there are three different sections, and we'll consider those in a moment. But it's a story that's being told. It's like someone is sitting in a chair with us gathered around, ready to tell us the story of God's plan to save us from our sins, the actualization of it, what happens when he comes, his ratifying the covenant with his own blood, and then the overthrow of death, the thing that scares us most, he overthrows it completely, and he's labeled worthy as the lamb. Well, before he begins, there's a wonderful introduction I want you to hear. This is the introduction to Messiah, and I think you'll recognize this. Listen closely.
recognize that tune? If you've watched R.C. or listened to R.C. Sproul's program, you know that's Renewing Your Minds theme song, but you now know that that's from Messiah, if you didn't know that before. That's a wonderful beginning because it captures several of the different moods that we are taken through as we listen to Messiah. Let's look at the scripture passages that make it up. If you go past the overture, which we just listened to, uh, Jennings uses Isaiah primarily. And Isaiah is, I think, one of the most complex books in all of scripture, and it weaves throughout uh, several themes. One is judgment upon the people of God for their sin. But also there's hope woven in as the picture of Messiah starts to take, play, take form, and we know who Messiah will look like and what he'll do to some degree, not in fullness, but we start to get pictures of it in Isaiah. But here, the people of God are as mired as they have ever been in sin. They are divided now. There's a northern and a southern kingdom with two different kings, and it's a mess. And, and they're doing their own thing, and they're pluralizing with the nations, and they are... Uh, the south isn't doing well, but better than the north. And the north is going to be taken captive and taken over by Assyria. And never to be really known again in any identified form. They're the lost tribes of Israel. And it's a terrible time for the people of God. And even though Isaiah is called to minister to the north who's, who's being lost and to the south who's on its way down, uh, in the midst of it, there's still a message of hope, the Messiah. And we can all understand what hopelessness is like what it's like to be depressed about our sin because we can gather that as sinful people in our need for Messiah. Look at what it says in Isaiah 40. And several songs are composed by Handel to, to display the message of these verses. The first one, the first section, Isaiah 41 through 3, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Here Jerusalem is a part for the whole. It's It is the capital of Israel, or Jerusalem, or the south. And cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. A cry for repentance and restoration we see here. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We know that these very words are spoken by the lips of John the Baptist, 700 years after Isaiah prophesies it. So it doesn't happen quickly. The the Messiah's coming, as far as the people are concerned, takes centuries. But he comes. And this is a picture 700 years before Jesus actually comes of the cry for repentance and restoration. And Messiah is the only one who can bring this by his provision of redemption. It's kind of gloomy up front, these first few songs. Verse 4 of Isaiah 40, look there in number 3. These numbers just show the different songs or musical pieces that Handel composes for these portions of Scripture. And number three says, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill be made low. The crooked straight and the rough places plain. In antiquity, without motor cars or or planes to fly over mountains or hills, mountains and hills were huge obstacles. I mean, you could not get past them. Uh, You would just see them, and they would be like a wall to get over them. Just uh, the common person would not be able to travel them. But when Messiah comes, he'll remove all such obstacles. And it's not meant literally, but so much as to say that all the stuff around us that seems to limit us and bind us and keep us back, Messiah will make all of that go away. He'll lower those mountains. He'll lower those hills. And the crooked will be made straight and the rough places plain. So the beginning of Messiah, just like it is in in Isaiah, goes from this despair to this hope, this despair to this hope. And we're left with this picture of Jesus coming, at least after the third song, 
with his arrival on the scene in the glory of God coming. Isaiah 40, verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. This wonderful picture of Messiah coming in that there being no doubt who God is. And remember, in Isaiah's writing to a people who had bought into other gods, bought into other idols. And there was, there was a, a marring of the glory of God. He could not be seen clearly anymore among his own people because of what they had done and their lack of devotion to him, their disobedience to him to set up high places, to keep the Assyrians happy, or whoever else was trying to press upon them with their gods. But when Messiah comes, the glory of the Lord will be revealed when he comes. Let's listen to number four. This is a wonderful rendition of Isaiah 40, verse 5. that for text painting? Do you see how uh, Handel's able to bring out uh, even the temporal nature of the flesh, the way the singers sing all flesh, 
and then the base with the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. It's the authority of God's word. When he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, it's 700 years later, but it's going to happen. And that's what is promised. Now, I want you to look how the story continues. It's a wonderful uh, display of how the Old Testament ties together. It's not just Isaiah saying this. The prophet Haggai and Malachi agree. Uh, It goes from this gloominess to this bright hope to this gloominess, this bright hope. And here we have what it means when Christ comes and his light is shone upon things. It says, Thus saith the Lord in number 5, Haggai 2, The Lord of hosts, yet once a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. So Christ will come, and it will shake everything up. I mean, it won't be the way it was before once he comes. Everything's different. You know, just a few weeks ago as we were working through Mark and that question comes when Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? There's a sense in which that very question has shaken up all history because everybody has to answer that now that Jesus has come and done his work. You can't get away with ignoring who Jesus is and what it means to you. You've got to answer that question. So the desire of the nations, what everybody desires, freedom from the oppression of our sins, even if they can't verbalize that freedom from what is going on with us can only come when one delivers us christ he's the desire of the nations malachi three through one becomes the focus of the next few songs that handel composes look at the verses we'll stop and listen to one of them but look at malachi three verse one which is still under number five the second paragraph the lord whom you ye seek the people are crying out for god to help them same theme in Malachi is in Isaiah. Same theme in all the prophets. They're crying out to God to deliver them. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. What a picture because the people want the Lord to come. The Lord's given them kings. He's given them prophets. He's given them priests, but all of them have failed. None of them have been, have done perfectly what God's called them to be. They could not rely upon any of them. Even the greatest of these was flawed, seriously flawed. But when the true prophet, priest, and king comes, the perfect one, the messenger of the covenant, then everything will be exposed and he'll come into his temple. And we certainly can take this to be in the literal fulfillment of Jesus entering the temple, the place where the people of God should have been glorifying the name of God. Instead, it had become a man-centered institution to worship man in his ways. And Jesus comes and he shines the light of judgment upon them and what he says to them. He will suddenly come into the temple. It's a great description of exactly what Jesus does in the first century. When he comes into the temple and overthrows the tables and probably had other such interchanges in his life with those who kept the temple and went to the temple to worship. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3, verse 2. Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. In other words, in ourselves, apart from him, how could we stand before God? Who can stand before God in their sin? None of us can. And we can look a certain way to each other, but we can't stand in the presence of God if it's our righteousness on display. Who can stand? Who can abide in the day of his coming? For he is like a refiner's fire. If you turn the temperature up just enough with a flame, the flame knows what to burn and what stays. And when the refiner's fire comes, it exposes all the dross. There's no way to hide it anymore. But you know what else is happening in Malachi? 
Malachi is not just an indictment on the people of God for their sin, people in general for their sin. It's also an indictment on something that strikes home for me personally. It's an indictment on the leaders of the people of God. Uh, He chastises the priests who were supposed to be giving them the message of hope in Messiah, the gospel as it were. Instead, they're misdirecting the people. They're directing them all which ways other than to God and through Messiah. And so when Jesus comes, he will confront those who should have been giving the right message. He'll purify the sons of Levi is what it says. Look at Malachi 3.3. He shall purify the sons of Levi that they may offer unto God an offering in righteousness. There's a cleaning that needs to happen so that what we offer unto God is acceptable and it can only be acceptable through Christ himself, the Messiah. I think of all the compositions in this wonderful piece, this oratorio, this one is one of the more haunting ones. Let's listen to it, number seven. And he shall purify.
Another wonderful example of text painting. He only has just a short verse and is able to make uh, this long song that really brings you into the seriousness of his coming. There's a painful aspect to Messiah's first coming. He has to confront the failure that is before him and the people that were called to, bra- to bring people to Christ. They were obscuring Christ. And there's a pain that comes when he shines his light upon the darkness. And purification is painful. And that's what happens in his first coming. And this is all still prophecy of what it will be like when Messiah comes, this picture that's being painted. <clears throat> Isaiah, as mentioned before, kind of weaves back and forth between this judgment and hope, judgment and hope and promise. And early on in Isaiah, there's a picture of how God will bring restoration. And it's combined with the words that are then echoed in Matthew in the New Testament. There in number eight, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So we have a picture that Messiah will be different than the other prophets, the other priests, the other kings. This will not be another man to fail. In fact, that's all man can do is fail. This would take someone special. It would have to be the God-man. It would have to be someone uh, who was like us to bear our sin, but yet unlike us, free from sin, and only God could save us. So the God-man will be the one who comes, and this is why he's called Emmanuel. And so this is, uh, brings a, a brightness to it, because finally, you know, all these kings keep getting promised, and we can't wait for another king, or another prophet to rise up, or, or you know, another one of these uh, people that will give us deliverance, but they failed, and so this will be different, though. This will be the God-man. And there's good news associated with this. In fact, the gospel, or good news, is not just a New Testament theme. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 9, which is in number 9. O thou that tellest good tidings, good news to Zion. Get thee up into the high mountain, O tell good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. O thou that tellest good tidings of Zion. And then Isaiah 60, which is in the last part of the book. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Listen, let's listen to this wonderful portion of Messiah that displays for us Isaiah 40, 9, and Isaiah 60 as well.
Isaiah 60, 2 and 3 tells of the darkness that precedes his coming. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion is true, but it takes many years. And verse 2 says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentile shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Think of all that preceded the time of Jesus' coming in history, and really what a dark time it was for much of the earth. But at the same time, this sets the backdrop for when Christ does come. And he doesn't just limit it to Israel. We studied in Mark how Jesus spends months sending his disciples to go share his message with the Gentiles north of Israel. So Jesus' coming is much greater than just something unique to Israel. He's the desire of all the nations, despite the darkness that surrounds them. But the prophecy is honest about what it's like without Messiah in the years to come. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 2 and number 11 The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. So this backdrop of darkness is met by the wonderment of Christ and his brightness and and how they longed for him when he came. And Messiah moves from prophecy now to reality as we move to the second section. Still in prophecy, though, is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Certainly one of the most beloved sections of Messiah. Let's listen to it now.
Well, now the text moves to the Christmas section. Actually, in Messiah, of all the sections, there are really only uh, six that relate directly to Christmas, even though this is the most uh, popular time of the year to listen to Messiah. And they come in the form of 13, just a small instrumental piece, and then 14, 15, 16, and 17. Look there in the back of the insert where we have Luke chapter 2, 8 to 14. Each section has a special song composed by Handel for it with the shepherds and the angels and then their joint expression of praise to God for what's happening. But let's look at the passage as we move through from prophecy now to realization of Jesus being born, Messiah come. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. You you draw back into the Old Testament the picture of God's glory visiting them and the realization of it even as a baby. Verse 10 and 11 of Luke. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Good tidings, the exact words used by Isaiah many centuries before. Good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Right from the announcement of his birth, it's clear that this gospel, these good tidings are to all people, people of all tribes and tongues. It's not just a Jewish thing. He's the Messiah for all. And then verse 13, this joint chorus of praise. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Listen to how uh, Handel, Handel crafts this to get a picture of this joint chorus that is sung. have one more song that I do want to play for you. It's the last one. But before we get there, look at what the scripture passages chosen do to guide us. Jesus has come. That's the message of Luke 2.14 and the glory to God in the highest chorus spoken or sung by the angels. But there's a reminder of all that has gone into God's orchestrating time and events to bring Messiah 
And it goes back to the Old Testament in the midst of the realization of Jesus' being here. And in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And we get this picture when we go through the Gospel of Mark. We're seeing how Christ comes to establish his kingdom, the king. And we see he doesn't limit it with just the Jews. He goes there first to confront the issues that are most prevalent and most important for understanding his work, but he talks to all the nations as well. And you can sort of sympathize with someone like Peter who struggled to understand exactly what Messiah was going to do. Because in Isaiah, we looking back can see it more clearly, but it would be a bit shrouded for them. In Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. That's what Jesus has done. They can see he's Messiah. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. All things we see Jesus clearly do in his miraculous ministry. What else will he do? Isaiah 40, 11 and Matthew 11 come together to see what he says and what he does. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd and he shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is a picture of Messiah from antiquity. But then the exact words that come to us in the New Testament, come unto him all ye that labor. Come unto him that are heavy laden and he will give you rest. That's the message of Messiah. He's the one you need. He's the one we need. Take his yoke upon you and learn of him for he is meek and lowly of heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. Don't we all want rest? I mean, we want to quit striving against whatever it is we're striving against. Maybe you know what it is. Maybe you know it's your life. It's your sin. It's, your, it's, it's the beat-down sense you have about everything that's coming your way. And we need relief from this. And it's not that the Christian life is easy. We discovered that last week as we considered Jesus saying, take up your cross. But it's that his yoke taken upon us is really carried by him. And in that sense, the biggest burdens we're worried about in this short life are taken by Christ. That's what Messiah does. It's way better than some temporal relief. What Messiah gives us is eternal. In Matthew 11, verse 30, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Messiah ends now with, it ends this section, section one, with Jesus having come and doing the work of his ministry in general. It shifts into part two now, where he goes to do the work of redemption that we have to have done in order for us to be right with God. It's the accomplishment of redemption, as it says, by the sacrifice of Christ. It also shows what those original witnesses to Jesus' ministry did. They rejected him. And it also shows that such rejection will be defeated. No one can oppose the power of the Almighty. John 1 says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Jesus is the Passover lamb. We need him to take our sins away. Isaiah 53, 3 through 6 prophesies exactly what happens to Jesus. He's despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Another dark section of Messiah, but it's dark in so far as it's dark for Jesus on our behalf. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He did not hide his face from shame and spitting. A picture of Jesus' beard being plucked, which is actually... Exactly the case in the New Testament played out before us. Verse 4 and verse 5 of that same chapter of Isaiah. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Now, as we close this portion of this 
overview, if you will, of the biblical message of Messiah. I want to close with this piece. The piece is repetitive on purpose, and I want you to really think about why it's repetitive and how powerful it is for us to think of the very words that are before you in 25 and 26 on your sheet. And we'll close listening to this.
Let's pray. Father, we see here that Handel thought those last two verses needed six minutes. Lord, we agree. It is by your scourging that we have been made right with God. Lord Jesus, we go about our lives doing whatever. Like sheep gone astray, everyone to his own way. But help us now as we consider this story of redemption to remember that the Lord God hath laid upon you, Christ, the iniquity of us all. And we thank you for taking it to the cross. And I pray, God, that as we consider the message of your gospel, so wonderfully displayed in this arrangement of biblical texts, that it would change our lives, even those who have known the story and accepted it a long time. Pray for your glory to be revealed. In Christ's name, amen. Let's together. It's always anticlimactic to sing a hymn after we listen to Messiah, but I think you are great singers in the Lord, so let's turn to 225. We'll just sing verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1 and verse 2 as the elders come to prepare the table of 225 once in Royal David's city.